0: You are listening to Uncommentary. So I want to talk to you about one of my favorite bookstores. Hearts and Minds Books is located in Pennsylvania. I've never been there, but I met the owner, Byron Borger, online, I think via Twitter. And um, I want to tell you why I use Hearts and Minds as often as I can. Uh, First, I'm a huge fan of independent booksellers. Uh, You know as well as I that when the great behemoth Amazon finally uh, began its quest to take over the world, um, that it is easy to order from Amazon, have the books delivered directly to your door. Uh, But over the course of several years, as Amazon was growing a lot of independent booksellers, mom-and-pop type shops, uh, they really suffered, and many of them went out of business. Well, there's been a resurgence, and I'm really glad about that. Uh, And one of my favorites is Hearts uh, Hearts and Minds Books, And so if you'll go to heartsandmindsbooks.com, now this is what's simple about it. You're not going to see an inventory page. You're not going to see, uh, you don't shop on heartsandmindsbooks.com in the way that you would at say being at barnesandnoble.com. Um, basically go to the inquiry page, uh, and you can send a message to Byron and ask is a certain book available. Now they have hundreds of thousands of titles they can get, but that's where you start. Um, then you can go to the order page and you literally type in the name of the book that you want and the author, whether you want hardback or paperback, uh, and they'll respond to you and let you know what the availability is, uh, how much shipping is going to be for your shipping options. Uh, and you say, well, doesn't that take a little bit of extra time? It does take a little bit of extra time. So if you need your book tomorrow, this may not be the route that you want to go, although they can ship overnight. But when you know you have some books coming up, whether they're textbooks or whether there's some other books, unless it's a special order or a self-published type of title that are harder to get, uh, if it's a normal book, uh, they can probably locate it for you. So you can go to the inquiry form and ask. Then you go to the order form and type in the information and uh, respond to all the information they ask for, and uh, they'll get back with you. And if you mention uncommentary in the uh, order blank, then uh, you'll get 20% off any title. You can also subscribe to the book notes where they feature several books uh, in each note with reviews, and you can order those through booksandheartsandminds.com uh, as well. Uh, but I really encourage you to check them out, especially if, um, if only 10% of your book orders uh, you switch over to, to them. That'll be huge for them, and it won't cost you that much more. Uh, and I'm trying to do at least that. And so uh, I encourage you, heartsandminds.com and mention Uncommentary Podcast for a 20% discount on most items, and they'll let you know when it applies. Well, over the last uh, several weeks, and this is an ongoing discussion on Twitter, especially amongst evangelicals, is the issue of systemic injustice or systemic racism. That is, is sin always between two people? Or as a result of sinfulness, uh, can sin be forced or can sin be acted out through systems? Can oppression be acted out through systems? Or is it always the slave owner and the slave or the, uh, the hired hand and the slave? And that all transactions uh, regarding sin and righteousness are between two people. Or uh, can sin be systematized in such a way that victims are created because of sinful systems that are put in place. It would be really hard to argue, I think, that the Holocaust, for instance, uh, was not systemic evil or systemic injustice or systemic racism or systemic sin because you had an organized effort led by the government of the country at the time to extinguish an entire segment of their population via the uh, final solution in which all Jews would be removed from uh, from Europe via um, death camps, primarily uh, firing squads as another method. And so are all of those sins only to be thought of as individual, only the individual commandant, only the individual guard, only the individual leader of the firing squad, only the individual uh, SS man who drove around the gas truck, only the architect who built the, the ovens. Uh, is it all just individual sin, one person against another or one person against two or three others? Or did the system that was put in place, uh, create an injustice that it made, made it virtually impossible for Jewish people to get away from. And so they suffered at the hands of a system that condemned them to death as a result of evil men, wicked men, who put that system into place. So my guest today is a professor of philosophy, and we're going to be talking about that. So without further ado, here is my interview with Scott Coley. Well, if you've ever wondered whether philosophers still live and breathe after the death of old Socrates, I have good news for you. I have a mostly live breathing philosopher on the podcast today, Scott Coley. Is professor of wait a minute I need to get this right. You teach moral and political philosophy, history of philosophy, and logic at Mount Saint Mary's University. Did I get that right?
1: That's right,
0: dude. I would never take a and class I'm, from uh,
1: you. My 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 title my title is lecturer.
0: Lecturer. So you literally yeah. get paid to talk.
1: Exactly. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Did You think you would never take a class from me? Is that what you
0: say? I would never. See, my daughter majored in philosophy at Georgia State a bunch of years ago. Oh, yeah, and she was really good at it too. I mean, she was really, really solid. They, they, um, they wanted her to go into the to the master's program. They had, they really were having their eye on her to be a professor. I'm positive it was the case, uh, but oh. she she chose uh, not to pursue that. And uh, she, I mean, she's a great gal and uh, great mom and wife and Facebook debater and just she's still a solid thinker. Um but she didn't pursue the uh the thing. Beth, I hope you're listening. This is a shout out to you. Uh <laughs>
1: well that yeah um yeah that's a they have a good a really good masters program down there.
0: That's what we were told um, at the time, yeah. 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 So shout out to the Georgia State Panthers also. So your PhD though is from Purdue uh but you have a master's mm-hmm. degree in systematic theology from University of Notre Dame go no That's don't right. don't go fighting irish don't go fighting irish i can't stand Notre Dame football um sorry uh, well, dude is
1: it because we're perpetually overrated
0: dude when like when i was in my teenage and young adult years they signed like a 400,000 year contract with NBC that they were going to be on tv every sure. week regardless of how bad they were And I got tired of at 4 o'clock in the afternoon having to watch Notre Dame because they had hogged up all the channel. So I don't like Notre Dame. Oh,
1: so this is sour grapes.
0: It is very much sour. It's sour Irish wine. I don't want those grapes
1: anyway. They're probably
0: sour. Uh, PhD in philosophy from Purdue. Go Boilermakers. I can go with that. Uh, There we go. Moral epist epist... I'm not even saying this right. Epistemology? Epistemology. Dead gummit. I should... I'm going to right. edit. James, edit that out. Moral epistemology.
2: <laughs> there you <laughs> go.
0: Philosophy of religion and political philosophy. So a lot of things that I'm really, really interested in but don't know nearly enough about. So you've done a lot of writing for uh, journals and whatnot, uh, reviewer for the Journal of Faith and Philosophy, and you're working on a book, which I will be happy to read as soon uh, as it is available to the general book reading public. So... Professor, lecturer, sorry, Scott Coley. Welcome to Uncommentary.
1: Well, thank you. It's good to be here.
0: Um, tell tell everybody something about yourself that I didn't just read in your official bio. Uh,
1: well, I'm married. Uh, I've been married for nearly seven years now. And my wife and I have a 10-month-old son. That's awesome. Who Who is, everybody says, you know, uh, people I talk to say, um, parenting is the best thing ever. And, uh, I find that it is, uh, sort of transcendent. I mean, it's on a totally different plane from anything
2: else. You
1: know, it's not that other stuff doesn't matter. It's just completely different. Um, and our son is delightful and, uh, we've just been having a lot of fun with him.
0: And how old were you when he was born?
1: How old was I when he was born? Oh man. So it was just ten months um, ago,
0: dude. This is not big math.
1: Well no, I tend to forget how I true story, I forgot my own birthday one year when I was in grad school until my mom called to wish me a happy birthday. <laughs> and I thought, Oh it is, isn't it? Yeah. I would have been, I guess, thirty five. thirty five.
0: Okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah I, I I started uh fathering when I was like 21 or twenty one or 21. I think when my oldest was born. So I didn't know, yeah, I I didn't know any adult life, uh, without fatherhood. Not really. So, um, Whew. welcome to the club, dude. Welcome to the club.
1: Thank you. Of
0: course you're living the dream now. That's right. Empty nest. Uh, so here's the thing. Um, we connected on Twitter. I don't know, last year sometime, I guess, maybe even a little over a year now. I can't remember. Um, we were kind of engaging over some similar topics, uh, at the time around justice, biblical justice, uh, social justice, those kinds of things. That, I think that was our initial engagement with some along, along some of those lines. And so um, you've proven really adept at taking uh, both complex ideas and making them easy to understand and what I would call not arcane but lesser-known ideas, uh, and making those easy to understand as well. So we're going to talk about some of that today. And one of the things that's been in the kind of in the point of discussion lately again is this idea of systemic injustice or systemic racism uh, after the death of George Floyd and then, uh, or in the previous uh, Ahmed Arbery and then Breonna Taylor and then a couple of uh, deaths that have happened since then that have made the news as well related to police activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we've been talking, uh, there's been a conversation in the wider uh, wider public, I guess, about what do, what do these things represent. And so a lot of people say uh, these things represent the same kind of things that we've been seeing for years and years and years and years and years. This is nothing new, but it's just becoming more known. Other people are questioning, uh, can this really be uh, part of a system? Aren't these just isolated incidents? Aren't these just... Uh, one-on-one people committing sins against each other. And there's not really a such thing as a systemic way to look at sin. Um, right. So talk a little bit about from a philosophical slash theological perspective, what, what systematic injustice or systematic racism would look like. So maybe define it first.
1: Good. Oh Okay. Okay. Good. So I, I think it might be helpful to to sort of take a, a quick step back and sort of survey the landscape um, and some of the areas where the concept of systemic injustice comes into play, and then I'll uh, and, and then I'll give a definition and and sort of talk concrete examples. So okay, so there are um, well known problems with. Uh, say, abuse in the SBC, and in particular, the way that abuse is handled by people in positions of church or denominational leadership, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Then there are are examples like uh, the ones you just uh, mentioned, right, to take a a very different case. We've got um, protests over police treatment of people of color, and in particular, uh, black people. And more generally, within our Broader political community, we see a lot of wealth and income inequality that's heavily demarcated along lines of race. Um, Okay, so there are some people like me, like you, Marty, uh, who would point to these problems and say these are systemic issues. We need to change the institutional arrangements that engender these kinds of outcomes. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Okay, so we'll come back to that in just a second, right? Um, There are other people who think that. All these problems and all problems generally come down to personal morality, right? So they say, well, whether it's on the one hand, you, you know, abuse issues in the SBC, they say, well, these are just bad guys, and the answer is for good guys to step up and, you know, to try to reform the bad guys so on and so forth. So a good um, a, a good then, deacon a
0: good deacon with a gun beats a bad pastor with a gun. Is that it?
1: There you go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. It's all about personal interactions, interactional morality. Okay. What we might call it right. All right. Um, then then the issue with police is you've got racist cops bad apples and the answer is you know uh training the ones who can be trained and weeding out the bad ones right who can who who are recalcitrant um, and then when it comes to economic inequality um, the issue is really to do with like work ethic and the answer is to, you know pull yourself up by your bootstraps
2: um,
1: okay so the group that looks at things this way right this includes who we might call them uh, the patriarchalists Christian nationalists, fellowcrats, culture warriors, whatever, right, mm-hmm. um, the, the the personal responsibility crowd, um, I think it would be helpful to, to sort of have a way of referring to them in the dialectic, right? And I would call this view that everything comes down to personal responsibility, whatever the domain. Mm-hmm. I, I would refer to this view as, as piety reductionism, since they think that all social ills are reducible to individual piety, Okay. right? Okay. Okay. Um, So this this reductionism, I think, is is a regrettably common view among white evangelicals, Um, because for one thing, um, for about the last 40 years, our political imagination has been captured by a few self-appointed spokesmen. And they are men. right? A Mm. few self-appointed spokesmen whose enthusiasm for politics is totally unchecked by the limits of their own expertise. Um, and I think that this vacuum of expertise is most evident in the field of institutional moral analysis. Um, their sort of moral horizons are are just tethered to individual piety, and therefore um, systemic injustice is invisible to them. Mm. Um, is it, I, is, I it really only, is it
0: only is it only invisible, them. or do they do they hold a position that it it cannot exist? It's it's theologically or a or, uh, philosophically impossible for it to exist. Therefore it is invisible.
1: Um, yeah, I don't, I mean, I'm not exactly sure what their, um, ontological view of systemic injustice is, whether they think it's, you know, impossible. Um, but, but I'm confident that it exists and that they don't see it. Mm,
0: okay. Well, that's fair. Right.
1: Yeah. Um, so, um, just the, the sort of, uh, uh, last point about this, um, piety reductionism, right? I, I think it's important to be clear about exactly what the problem with their view is, right? It's not the piety part because sin is a real thing mm-hmm. and bad things happen when people sin mm-hmm. and we should acknowledge that the problem is the reductionism part, right? Right. Um, it's simply, it's simply false that all of our problems can be reduced to some individual moral failure, Right. Um, so what's missing from their paradigm is an awareness that injustice can also come about as a result of systemic or institutional ills, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, to, to circle back to your question, Marty, that you asked, do they, do they think it's sort of impossible? Um, I think that's an interesting question, and I'm sorry that I don't have a good answer. Um, I, I haven't been able to figure out exactly what the justification is because when I interact with people who think this way, um, it's really difficult um, to elicit sort of straightforward answers.
0: Well, the, to what, yeah, what I posited to yeah. you is the answer, the only answer that I have been able to to figure out from what I've read. Um, that is, it's a it's it's a theologically based objection uh that is based on what you have described uh piety reductionism or individual responsibility and that beyond that uh there's nowhere to go so there's there's not another box there's not another peg or hanger to put a, a an ex- to extend that theology out it is it's finite in uh, in its approach and once you reach the end of it there's nowhere else to go so because it isn't within that reductionism that individual responsibility a framework, then it is just not there. It, it's not something that's real. It, it's CRT or CT or dreamed up by the left or something like that. Uh, to, oh, I got you. Okay, to I got alleviate you. people from guess what? Personal responsibility. So everything then is uh, blank. Okay. Yeah.
1: Okay. So, the, so, the, so I got take the question to be this then. Uh, good. So the question is, do they, uh, on the one hand, right. Do they, they, they either, they do one of two things. Um, do they acknowledge that systemic injustice is a thing and yet they just think that it's not present in these different cases that we point to, right? Or is it the case alternatively that they, that they just don't, they think systemic injustice is just an empty concept. Yes. Like it's not actually a thing.
0: Yeah. That's what I got. I got, it. got,
1: yeah. It. Yeah. um, Hmm. Yeah. I don't, I, I'm not really sh- I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know.
0: Young man, do your homework.
1: <laughs> well no, see here's the thing. I, I leave that I leave those questions to the sociologists and psychologists, yeah. right? Yeah. As far as as far as tracing the um you know, epidemiology sure. of exactly why they think what they think. But but I mean actually Peter uh uh or sorry, Kevin Cruz um wrote a book called um
0: one Nation Under God.
1: Uh, one, one Nation Under God, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that sort of uh, traces a lot of this. And then, of course, the work of Christian Smith and sociology. I mean, they, um, th- there's uh, the antecedents of this way of thinking go back um, to – and so there's another really good book on it. Uh, it's an old one by Gary Wills called Nixon Agonistes. Oh, wow. That actually anticipates a lot of sort of more contemporary work. I believe you wrote that back in the 70s. Um, but in any case, um, you can really find these roots starting to develop really strongly as far back as like the nineteen fifties, forties, and fifties. I would say. Um, but but in any case, okay. So um, as far as like defining um, uh, institutional justice, we good? Let me uh, go ahead and, and jump into exactly how we might define institutional justice.
0: Yeah, go man.
1: OK, perfect. OK, so I'm going to offer a simple uh, concrete example in a, in a minute. But um, but I think that it would be helpful to start by defining what we mean by uh, institutional or systemic justice, because I think there's, as you noted in your um, opening remarks, right? I think there's a lack of clarity around this term mm-hmm. that leads to some pretty unhelpful disagreements. People tend to apply the term correctly, at least initially, Um but because of the lack of clarity, I think um, things tend to break down uh, from there. So there are two key pieces here, right? Um, there's institutions and justice. So let's start with justice. <laughs> uh, uh, <yeah. laughs>
0: hey, look, okay. you're making it, so, making it way too easy now.
1: making it way too easy? Oh, man. Um,
0: institutions <laughs> and justice. Yeah. Okay, go ahead.
1: That's, that, good, good. Okay, so let's start with justice. So justice is achieved when people get what they are owed, for better or for worse, mm-hmm. economically, procedurally, politically, judicially, whatever. So the term justice describes a number of related concepts across a variety of different spheres. Um, but in every case, it refers to giving people what they are due, right? So when someone says that something is unjust, they're saying that someone is owed something that they're being denied mm-hmm. or that they deserve something that's being withheld. Okay? OK, now I find that it's really important to distinguish justice uh, from charity, particularly in the context of conversations around systemic injustice. OK, okay? we got to distinguish justice from charity.
2: I've noticed
1: that um, a lot of people in the piety reductionism crowd seem to think that systemic justice is code for government charity. OK, taking resources from people who've earned them and reallocating those resources to people who haven't right? or just in general, you know, um, giving, uh, just giving stuff to people that are in a bad way,
0: which explains right? how Marxism and socialism are interjected in the conversations so frequently.
1: Uh, sure. Yeah. That, and the fact that they, um, often, uh, you know, I obviously haven't spoken to all of it often aren't exactly clear on what Marxism is. <laughs> um, but, 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 but sure. Yeah. Um, uh, they, they they yeah, but they associate and, you know, the they throw around the term social justice and social warrior and all this kind of thing. And they say that, well, what's being advocated for here is a government uh, charity. It's um, just doing nice things for, you know, uh, poor people or mm-hmm. the disenfranchised, et cetera. Well, this this is utter nonsense. And I cannot emphasize this enough. It is complete and utter nonsense.
2: Um,
1: so uh, if I give you twenty dollars when I don't owe you $20, that's charity, right? Right. But if I give you $20 when I owe you $20, that's justice. Right. And the difference is important. The difference is really important because we usually think of charity as optional. It's what philosophers call supererogatory, which is to say it's good to do, but it's not bad not to do. That's charity, right? Okay. By contrast, it is always bad to withhold justice because withholding justice Not giving someone what they're owed is injustice, which is always wrong. Right. It's always wrong for me to keep something that rightfully belongs to you. Always. Whether it's money or uh, 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 some kind of resource or health care or whatever, right? If it's owed to you and I withhold it, that is injustice. Okay. Now, we can argue about what you're owed. We can argue about what I owe you, Right. But let's be clear: we're not talking about charity; we're talking about justice. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, justice is achieved when we get what we deserve, and injustice is done when when we are denied something that we deserve. Now, an institution, quickly, is just a set of rules. An institution is a set of rules, right? Yep. Um, and I mean rules in the broadest sense here, uh, including not only formal rules or laws, but also traditions, conventions, standing practices, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Okay. So institutions are sort of what guide our thinking in a given context about who deserves what. Um, okay. So an institutional injustice is what happens when the rules or traditions or norms, what have you, when the rules are structured in a way that the rules themselves serve to deny people what's rightfully theirs. Okay. So here's, so here's a quick example that I think will bring it all together until very recently, my undergraduate institution in Chapel Hill gave legacy points to applicants whose parents or grandparents attended UNC, Mm -hmm. right? So you get a a little nudge on your application. Yeah,
0: legacy benefit, yeah.
1: Family members. Right. Well, UNC wasn't racially integrated until 1955. So if you were a person of color, you weren't even permitted to apply. So uh, if my granddad went to UNC – I'd have an advantage over a person of color whose granddad wasn't even uh, allowed to apply Mm -hmm. to UNC. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I'd have an advantage, in other words, by virtue of nothing other than skin color. Mm -hmm. So in order for this injustice to happen, there doesn't need to be a racist admissions officer sitting in Jackson Hall, tossing out the applications of black students. Right. The facts of history and the rules conspire To achieve a racist result. People Mm -hmm. of color are at a disadvantage in the application process due to nothing other than the color of their skin. This is wrong and it can't be solved by means of reforming individuals. Right. There's nothing to be done on an individual level, really. So this reductionism is clearly inadequate, right? The rules themselves, institutions need to be changed
0: talking to Scott Coley about a whole bunch of stuff, uh, regarding justice and injustice. And we're going to come back and uh, talk some more right after this. So what does it take to keep uncommentary on the air? Uh, Technically it doesn't cost a lot. Um, there's costs associated with editing. There's costs associated with scheduling and there's not a lot more, but nobody gets rich off of podcasts that they do from their room and their home. Uh, It's all about getting the content out and uh, doing what people uh, like and maybe even need to hear. So I do want to encourage you to become a Patreon uh, or at least maybe a one-time gift. Uh, If you go to patreon.com slash uncommentary, you can become a supporter for as little as two bucks a month. I mean, that's like foregoing a 20 ounce Coke one time a month. And you can become a uh, $2 a month contributor supporter level. Uh, if you choose the $3 a month, you'll get a podcast logo, an uncommentary podcast logo. If you choose $5, the gold level, you'll get a mug. Uh, and these are actually pretty nice um, mugs. If you choose $10, you'll get a sticker and a mug. Uh, if you go above that, then there's other stuff. I mean, if you've just got like money to spare and you want to give 250 a month, we could really do some upgrades around here. Um, but the reality is it doesn't take a lot and uh, a little bit helps out a ton and makes it worthwhile. And occasionally I can take my wife out for a meal. Uh, if you'd rather do a one-time thing, you can use PayPal, paypal.me slash uncommentary pod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentary pod or Patreon is monthly. And these are uh, auto drafts. So you don't have to write checks. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to go back to the website. Uh, the $2 is gone. The $3 is gone. And really uh, you never miss it. So that's patreon.com slash uncommentary as well. And now back to this week's episode. Okay. So legacy, uh, legacy advantages and admissions is one example of, uh, systemic racism where a person doesn't have to be a personal bigot or a personal racist, uh, like a person who would administer some abstract test when a person went to vote in the 1960s in Mississippi or something like that, or register to vote. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. What's another example of, uh, obviously that's an example, but what's another example you can think of where it's just kind of baked into the system?
1: Uh, okay, so um, there's uh, there's one example that you and I have discussed on, um, on Twitter at, at various times, um, which has to do with Um, housing and passive income and intergenerational transfers of wealth.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. Yep.
1: So um, starting around the middle of the 20th century, um, the U.S. government decided that it would be uh, a good thing to ensure mortgages that met certain criteria, which is to say – So the U.S. government basically got in the business of insuring banks uh, for the purposes of lending to people to buy homes. Right. So like any other insurance company, right, the U.S. government said, provided that a borrower meets certain criteria uh, financially and so forth, um, we will cover your losses, bank, if if they default Mm -hmm. on the mortgage. Right. Right. So, uh, by means of providing insurance, the U S government got in the mortgage business. Um, now imagine that, um, your, oh, another important thing to note here, right? Is that for the last, basically ever since the government got involved in the lending business, which made home ownership a possibility for a whole lot of people mm-hmm. who otherwise simply would not have bought homes. Right. Um, uh, is that for about 90% of people who, um, have money to pass on to their kids when they die, for about 90% of people, their only source of wealth generation, uh, their only source of passive income, is, uh, uh, which for most people that, um, Passive income is the only way that they generate wealth because people don't. You know, you, you hear people say, "Well, you know, just save money and you know, eventually you'll
2: <laughs> your savings account will build up." I
1: mean, I mean, it's it's theoretically possible, and I suppose some people have done it, but the vast majority of people do not. Do
2: that. Right,
1: <laughs> right. Um, so so if you're going to have something to pass on to your kids, right, in in the vast majority of cases, overwhelming majority of cases, that's going to come in the form of home equity. Right. Right. Um, so, so rather than renting and just giving somebody else your money every month, um, you get a loan from a bank, you take that money, you buy a house and you pay the bank back over time and the money that you pay back to the bank, uh, minus whatever interest they're taking out, that's, that's your money. So that when you sell the house or if you decide to refinance or take out a loan against the equity in the house, whatever, um, that money is there and available to right. you to be used yeah. for whatever, right? Um, And then, of course, um, you know, with the exception of some uh, sort of blips in the in the market, uh, basically real estate prices are uh, stable and head steadily upward. Right. Right. So there's, of course, the increased value of your home over time that also goes towards the equity. Okay. So the U.S. government is ensuring this whole uh, process. Right. For a couple of generations um, throughout which uh, black citizens did not have access to mortgages that were insured by the U S government for a variety of complicated reasons. But basically in order to be eligible for this kind of insurance, the house had to be in a certain neighborhood. Uh, and um, those neighborhoods were for the most part foreclosed to people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as a result, um, they were unable to get uh, this, a mortgage that was backed by this kind of insurance and of course if you're a bank right you're not gonna and you there are plenty of people you could lend to where you the, the mortgage is covered by this insurance program you're not going to lend to people who aren't covered by the mortgage insurance program that would be insane right right so so effectively white people had access to uh... mortgages and uh... American did did not yeah. no now, now, of course, since it's a government program, it's being subsidized by tax dollars, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and who's paying taxes? Everyone. Yeah. Right? So if you're a person of color, you're contributing to this program, but you're not allowed to benefit from
0: yeah. it. Yeah. Yep.
1: Right? And so th- this was, this was uh, I mean, this is bad for a whole slew of reasons, right? I mean, that is so um, patently but,
0: unjust on its face, I don't know how anybody could, I really do not know how, how anybody could miss it.
1: I mean, outrageous. Yeah.
0: Oh, and it's systemic too. So so
1: for, so for one, yeah, yeah. So, so, okay. So for one thing, if you go, if you go back to the people who are contributing to this system, but aren't allowed to benefit from it, that is, um, wealth redistribution, right? I mean, you want to talk about wealth redistribution, right? Right. We we don't want the government in the business of redistributing wealth. Okay. Well, it's already happened.
2: Yeah.
1: (laughs) It's it's benefited you, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, guy who's saying this uh uh talk talk about personal responsibility right um so so there's that that immediate problem there right but then what happens is over time um if you have so so imagine that your grandparents had access to uh a mortgage right and Mm -hmm. over time they build up home equity right then your parents go to buy a home and maybe they have trouble pulling together a down payment and so their their parents your grandparents Mm -hmm. right they say, uh, "Hey, we'll help you out. We'll draw out some some equity. It's no problem for us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, after all, it's your inheritance we're talking about. So right. I'll we'll <laughs> take out ten thousand dollars and give it to you to give to the bank, okay? And then you've got a person of color. Now we're talking about your parents' generation, now, mm-hmm. not your grandparents' generation. We're talking about your parents' generation. You got a person of color who's uh, and let's say that this is after the uh, uh, Civil Rights Act that there have been several, but the Civil Rights Act and in the 60s, signed by Johnson, Mm -hmm. that um, at least uh, in terms of law uh, was supposed to make housing opportunities equal, right? Fair housing. Um, Right, right. So at least theoretically, uh, people of color who are in the market competing for housing with, with your parents. Um, at least theoretically, have an equal opportunity, right? But your parents have the edge that they're getting subsidized by their parents who had access to a mortgage, mm-hmm. right? So they got more money to put on the table, not to mention uh paying for college and you know all all the other things, just the safety net. And 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 uh, so the, I think another important thing to notice, right, is that these disparities that are systemic, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're no longer talking about racists making rules about who can live in what neighborhood and get a mortgage, right? We're just talking about the echoes of this past injustice that result simply from the cooperation of historical facts and the rules being what they are, Mm. right? Yep. Um, Another thing that's really important to point out beyond just uh, financial disparities. um, So, you know, as you know, I, I teach philosophy, right? Well, um, one thing, one conversation that happens, I think probably uh, pretty typically across the liberal arts, but particularly in philosophy, um, is that you tell your undergraduate uh, faculty, you know, I want to go to grad school in philosophy, or you like write me a reference or whatever, whatever. The first thing they're going to say is, "Are you sure you want to do this?" Because the job market is really bad and is showing no signs of improvement. So if you're going to do this, you should ask yourself if I get my PhD in philosophy, am I going to be, and then I can't find a full time teaching job, am I going to be bitter and regret that I spent, you know, four to ten years of my life working on this degree right. that now, you know, I can't use toward gainful employment? Um, you know, my, my, uh, my, my parents uh are very supportive. Uh my mother maybe had some questions when I when I said, Hey guys, I'm not going to law school. I'm gonna go get a PhD in philosophy. My mom was like, Uh <laughs> are you, what are you gonna how are you gonna Okay. Uh well if it doesn't work out, you can always come back and stay with us while you figure out your next move. Yeah. <laughs> right? Um in other words, I had a uh safety net there. Right? Um, had I not had that safety net, I don't know that I would have. I don't know that I would have felt at ease mm-hmm. choosing the occupation that I chose. Yeah. Right. I might have. I might have thought, well, you know, I'm a grown up now, and I just have to be practical about things. So I'm going to do something else they, where I'm guaranteed a a decent income more quickly. And then mm-hmm. there's and then there's grad school itself, right? Where like no joke, man. I I I went for weeks at a time in grad school where I had like forty dollars in my checking account. You know, because graduate stipends are not.
0: Yeah, yeah. You
1: know, not great.
0: Yeah, welcome to grad school. Um,
1: right, and and I like I can honestly say that I was like poor, you know, but uh, it's not as though it's not as though I was worried. You know, if I was ever going to eat again, mm-hmm. right because I knew if it really came down to it, I could pick up the phone and call my parents and, you know, they'd send me a check for a hundred bucks or whatever. Yeah. You know? Um, I mean, there are just all these, all these dynamics about uh, sort of intergenerational cooperation in the accumulation and transfer of wealth that are so dependent on uh, this discriminatory government program that um really created a lot of the wealth that is you know still in circulation. I mean uh that's uh people the way that people accumulate wealth Americans and this is also true to some extent in the UK although uh less so because for cultural reasons i haven't quite figured out they're more averse to to debt um typically but um but this is also true uh over there um uh the, the 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 biggest way that people accumulate wealth is through home equity
2: mm-hmm.
1: Period. <laughs> right?
2: so
0: let's um, um let's back up a little bit from uh an obvious injustice like um lim- limiting redlining or limiting uh preventing uh people of color from borrowing for government back loans which puts them in a disadvantage. So I would uh I would call that an actively racist or an actively unjust policy or law where certain people are specifically excluded uh based mm-hmm. upon definable factors. Let's look mm-hmm. at a different situation. <clears throat> um let's just say uh the war on drugs. So Nixon mm-hmm. decides to um go to go to combat over drugs and drug usage. And we pass a number of draconian laws designed to uh, put um, drug users uh, primarily and drug dealers secondarily, I guess, into jail for extended terms. And so we have three strikes or outlaws and all these kinds of things. So Mm -hmm. on its face, uh, the argument could be made. Well, these laws are not unjust because we're not requiring people to use drugs. If they use drugs, then they might run afoul of the law and might wind up in jail. So the argument would be, oh, well, okay. So so we have these laws and people should obey the law. So the law in itself being passed would not necessarily be unjust. But after, say, oh, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years, we begin to study the effects of the laws. And as we study the effects of the laws, and not only the original laws, but the laws that have been ruled upon and put into place by courts all across America that have to do with the war on drugs, uh, we begin Mm -hmm. to find, oh, goodness, look, some of these are being uh, enforced uh, unequally. Uh, In fact, we can find a trend of a certain part of the population demographic is being treated one way when they go to court and another group is being treated another way when they go to court. Uh, and it may or may not be related to uh, wealth and the the ability of one person or one group of people to have uh, better attorneys than another group of people who has to depend on public defenders. But the one thing that is definable is race and that after 10, 15, 20 years, we can look back and say, Oh my goodness, uh, these laws now are affecting Black people or people of color at X percentage times or X number of times based on same exact same criteria, same crime, same background, same number of arrests, all these kinds of things than the mm-hmm. sentences that are being handed down to white people. So mm-hmm. uh, so we go from an unjust law like the F8, the federally backed housing where people were excluded to a, a law that might not have been unjust on its face. It might've been broad enough that it could have been considered. This is a, a good law, but then we look back and see it's being unequally applied. So how do we, how, how do we deter, how do we determine then, or what can we do to think about, um, how that injustice looks now, what we need to do, uh, about such an injustice. And again, how is it not systemic since it's baked into the system having to do with how drug usage and drug arrests are prosecuted?
1: Right. Okay. So a lot, a lot there to unpack. Um, and, uh, yeah, so if, if if you can, if you could figure out how to ensure that facially neutral laws are enforced in a way that doesn't achieve, uh, uh, racially disparate results. Then, um, you know, I think the U.S. Supreme Court would like to hear from you. <laughs> Maybe you could file an amicus brief. Uh, um, that's been sort of the the problem of U.S. criminal justice since the Warren Court. At least, I mean, the problem goes back, of course, before, well before that. But the Warren, in the Warren Court, um, the Supreme Court starts trying to deal in earnest with some of these problems, and there you see a shift in the Warren Court. You see a you, uh, and slightly before, you see a shift from an emphasis on the um, Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment to an emphasis on the, the Due Process Clause in the 14th Amendment. And the significance of that is that um, by means of the Due Process Clause, which the Supreme Court uh, read to mean all of the rights that are guaranteed in the Bill of Rights, so that now we have federal oversight of how the how state law enforcement and uh, judiciaries uh, deal with criminal defendants, which prior to that period hadn't been the case. Mm -hmm. Um, You you have the the Supreme Court um, trying to deal with substantively unjust outcomes by means of procedural justice, Um, which is to say, um, well, we notice that these Uh, courts, particularly in the South, but not only in the South, courts in the South are handing out uh, really uh, disparate uh, sentences to black versus white uh, criminal defendants. Um, And of course, this is all once things get to court. Prior Mm -hmm. to that, you've got prosecutors who have discretion. Um, and so it's not just that you compare outcomes with black defendants to outcomes with white defendants, but how many white defend- defendants by virtue of prosecutor prosecutorial discretion didn't even get taken to
0: court. Right. Right.
1: <laughs> right. Um, uh, yeah. So um, maybe we could trace this thread, um, a, um, a, a, a similar phrase right, to the, the war on drugs and a sort of similar uh, complex of ideas and problems that I think is slightly broader would be um, this phrase law and order, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And that can actually connect that to the reforms under the the Warren court, right? So um, I think the phrase law and order, it is, it is a racist dog whistle in American politics. um, But apart from sort of concealing the, the, the part that you can't say out loud, I think it's actually sort of a, um, a deceptively candid phrase because notice there's no reference to justice there. Right. 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 This is the law. This is the established order and it will be enforced. Yeah. I noticed. Never the, mind uh, uh,
0: yeah. Yeah. I was thinking the other day that uh, for all the going on and on about law and order, there is no law and order in the Bible. It's, it's uh law justice, grace. I mean, it's, it's totally different concepts.
1: Exactly. Right. Because law and order can be, I mean, a nihilist can, 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 can advocate for law and order right, <laughs>
0: right? yep
1: um yeah i got I n- no problem uh if i'm a nihilist i have no problem advocating for laws and uh a uh social order that benefit me <laughs> that's that's precisely what Thrasymachus argues for in book one of the republic and by the way i mean this is the quickest answer that folks who accuse you of being a social justice warrior, you know, they want to talk about CRT or whatever. When you're talking about justice, I mean, justice goes back uh, to, you know, before Plato, right. right. But Plato is a good, a good landmark. Cause that's, you know, over a couple thousand years ago.
0: Right? Well, that's far enough back. I mean, uh, we at those, least get beyond Marx and the Frankfurt school. Uh, right.
1: <laughs> right. Right. Yep. Um, okay. So, so, so law and order, right. Um, it, so wind the clock back you yep. the, you got the Warren Court coming up with all of these what may seem to the public to be sort of novel interpretations of this 200 um, year old document according to which basically uh, folks who have been convicted of crimes uh, their convictions get overturned and you have to you got to let them go now or you got to retry them and there seem to be a lot more policing of the police mm-hmm. And this coincides, right these these decisions uh take Miranda, for example, just to take one example right there're a handful of like landmark cases that really uh dramatically impact how law enforcement operates in, in the u s but Miranda's a good example because everyone's familiar with Miranda rights um those rights you know you have the right to remain silent uh anything you say you have a right to an attorney blah 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 um uh that, that whole script started with a Supreme Court decision in which the criminal defendant, uh, in this case, um, Miranda v. Arizona, that made its way up to the Supreme Court, um, the criminal defendant was, was guilty of sin, right? His, and his conviction ended up being thrown out, but he was retried and convicted. I mean, he's absolutely guilty. No, no one disputed that. Yeah. So the Supreme Court said, <laughs> as a matter of procedure, as a matter of procedure, you must make sure that people are informed of these rights. Yeah. 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 Well, well, the public's looking around, you know, back in the back, uh, um, 60s and 70s. Right. They're looking around and they're saying, well, we've got the the highest court in the land that uh, is, is setting uh, is making policing harder. Meanwhile, we've got uh, a crime wave going on. Right. Uh, the U.S. public incidentally uh, seems to based on voting patterns, right, seems to. Uh, intuit uh, um, c- really easily, intuit causal connections between um, the extent to which we are incarcerating or not incarcerating people, and you know rises in crime. That, that you know, cause and effect is famously difficult, particularly yeah. in social settings. Um, so it's not in, you know at all clear that the causation is there. But in any case, you're right The '60s and '70s, the Supreme Court making policing harder, it seems. And meanwhile, you've got kids burning their draft cards, free love, uh, bra burning, you've got this guy named Jimi Hendrix playing some version of something that he claims to be the national anthem, uh, you know, dropping acid and then lighting his guitar on fire, and, and everyone's running amok. Hippies are running amok. Everything is a disaster, Right. And the Supreme Court isn't helping things with their novel interpretations of the Constitution. <laughs> and then, and then, and and then, and then Nixon comes along, um, and you got, and and you know, you actually do have a rise in crime, mm-hmm. right? Which incidentally could be due to the fact that you've got um, the largest population ever of Americans, yeah, coming of age, and you know there aren't jobs for them. Well, what happens when you got a bunch of 18, 20, 22-year-old males with nothing to do.
0: Who refused to go to the war and decided to stay home.
1: Right. Right. They refused to go to the war and there's not a job for them. What are they going to do? they got to find something to do. What are they going to do? Probably illegal stuff, right? Eventually. Okay. Um, So so, um, Nixon comes along and says, you know, hey, law and order. Right? We want law and order. Um, Calls for law and order then uh, only grow uh, throughout the 1980s. And I might add this was this was Republicans and Democrats both were we're in this sort of bidding war to bid up uh, in an effort to have a reputation of being tough on crime. They were bidding up sentences, particularly attached to drug crimes. You end up with a situation where um, procedural rules are being uh, put in place by uh, courts, right? Like you've got to give people their Miranda rights, uh, people have a right to an attorney, they don't have to talk to you if they don't have an attorney, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, well, who's most likely to take advantage of these rights? And who, who, who's in a position to most take advantage of these rights? Well, it's people who have access to high-priced attorneys, mm. right? Um, so So, the advantages of these reforms are really going to break down along economic lines, which too often our society break down along racial lines. Mm. Um, And I mean, look, the disparities in sentencing between powdered versus crack cocaine. I mean, that's, that's well documented. Right. If you really, if you really want to look at a a racial disparity and how people react to different kinds of drugs, look at the, look at the difference between how we reacted to, uh, cocaine in the 1980s versus how we reacted to opioids more recently. Yeah. Totally different. Totally different.
0: Wow. Well, my guest today has been Scott Coley. Uh, he's a philosopher dude. So do you know, um, Alvin Plantinga, do you know any of the other well-known philosophers or y'all, y'all like text back and forth or anything like that?
1: Who's that? Who'd you say?
0: Alvin Plantinga. What, Isn't that how you say his oh, name? Oh,
1: Plantinga. Yeah, yeah. So he's he's uh he's out of the game these days. He's retired. Oh, he's man. still writing books.
0: A retired philosopher. I mean, what does that even look like?
1: Yeah, what's that? He's probably out mountain climbing. <laughs> you know that that's his, his hobby. He climbs mountains. I'm dead serious.
0: I did not know that.
1: Not, climb, climb, yeah, he's like a mountaineer.
0: That is awesome. Um, so you're on social media.
2: Yeah, we
1: got, a, we got what's a big your... group text going. Yeah, <laughs> oh, go <ahead. laughs>
0: you and uh, Plantinga and the ghost of Socrates. Uh, so you're on social media. What's your Twitter handle?
1: Uh, at Scott underscore M underscore Koli.
0: All right. Definitely worth following Scott. He, uh, he breaks things down really well as he has on this podcast. He does it on Twitter in threads and does a great job of, of that. Uh, do you have a, I know you're working on a book. Is there a target, any potential target date when it might be released?
1: Uh, so, it depends on how long the peer review process takes, but um, I think next fall would be a little bit too optimistic. Maybe, maybe uh, fall twenty twenty
0: two. Oh, okay, very good, very good. Yeah. All right, so y'all uh, be alert for that in a couple of years. Uh, Scott Coley, thanks so much for being with me, and I hope you have a fantastic
1: week. Okay, thank you, Marty.
0: As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at Pod. Please rate and review, and whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility. Uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, and as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com uncom- uh, on your Facebook page or if you tweet the link or retweet the uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solidale Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast.